But we have a special guest preacher this week, Tom Hendricks. We've decided to add him to the preaching rotation. Uh, yeah. Tom is our lead pastor, and he's been on sabbatical until this Sunday. Welcome back, my brother. You know, what Beth didn't say about Haley is that she's like super, super smart. She could read, and I'm not exaggerating, when she was three. And when she was five, she was reading like 600-page books. I could give you the names of the books. It was crazy. And it may be a little crazy that we let her read them. But, um, but we would send her to a room, you know, like, we're, oh, we're going to put her in timeout. This will do it because nothing else had. And then we just realized that she loved being in her room because then she would just read. She would just read all day. So eventually, we just took away the books, and that worked. So think about that. All right, it has been a super somber week here in South Florida for all the obvious reasons. Uh, we have watched our neighbors to the east suffer greatly. Uh, I love the plan that we have and that we're, we're working towards, and we want to recruit every single one of you that we possibly can to be a part of that. And so on the one hand, like I feel the weight of the somberness of it, but, but then on the other hand, kind of like on a personal level, I'm just so excited to be back. Like, it is so wonderful to be back here. Like, I have missed the team. I've missed the purpose. I've missed the mission. I've missed the adrenaline. Turns out, adrenaline is awesome. Like, it's amazing. Like, my adrenal glands today are going, wait, what? Like, you haven't been used in three months. And it's great. I love it. It's fantastic. It was great to be gone. Super thankful for that. But it's great to be back. And, and we came back like a little before we were actually officially back. We went to a team night. And I met somebody at the team night. She came up afterwards and she said, you know, I've been at Rio for five or six weeks and I really love it. And I just, I just haven't met you. And so she introduced herself to me and it was awesome. But that made me think, wait a minute, there's probably quite a few people like that that I don't even know. And I'm looking forward to getting to know. So let me introduce myself to you, okay? So my name is Tom Hendricks. You met my wife a minute ago. Uh, her name is Beth. I have been the lead pastor here at this church for almost exactly 18 years. Uh, for four years prior to that, we were members of this church and a part of this community, and raising our family here has been one of our greatest joys. And incidentally, if you look at our staff, about 98% of us were hired right out of our congregation, which I think is helpful uh, and healthy. It's wonderful. But here's what I hope that you have learned that I've known all along, okay? I am just one part of a really amazing team of people. And that really amazing team involves some staff members, but that really amazing team is primarily loaded full of people that are not staff members that I together have the privilege of leading this church with and trying to discern the will of God with and following after Jesus with as a part of the greater church here in this community and in this county that we have the privilege of partnering with. So that's really who I am. And this summer has proven that, I hope, to everybody. Super busy summer for our church and school. I have been involved in about none of it. Really. We didn't stop. We didn't slow down. We moved forward in really significant and awesome ways. And so I am thankful for the team. I'm thankful for you guys. I'm thankful for the session that went ahead and approved me doing something crazy. Like, who gets to take three months off of work? You know what? I did. And it was great. <laughs> it was great. I'm sorry that we can't all do that. And I, I understand that too. But here's what we want from you. If you don't know this already, you're about to learn. So you ready? Here we go. We want you to be a part of the team. 
And we are not shy about that. Like at the end of last year and at the beginning of this year, we talked about spectators and fans and players. Why did we do that? Because it wasn't like subtle. It was, it was so that you can go, I'm here, I'm, I'm this, or I'm, or I'm this, or you know what, no, 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 I, I, I'm this. We defined the categories. We said spectators are people who are just taking the risk of checking us out. And we were all spectators at one time. You're walking in the door, you're a little bit nervous. You're thinking, I don't know, are these people going to be like me? Are these people going to accept me? Are these people going to be super weird, like in a way that I can't handle? Because we are weird. But, but is it weird that I have to worry about? Like, I mean, what have I gotten myself into? You're kind of thinking to yourself, oh, no, I knew I shouldn't have done this. And you're spectating. You're just checking things out. And we rejoice that you're doing that. Then we have fans. Those are people who have spectated. And now they're kind of like, all right, they're weird, but not in a way that I have to worry about. And they're nice to me, and they accept me, and I can be myself here, and I can tell them what all my problems are, and I'm not rejected, and I'm like, I, I feel pretty good about it, and I like what they're doing with the Bahamas, and I like what they do in Haiti, and I kind of like what they do here in the city. Like, I'm a fan. I, I'm favorably disposed. Way to go, guys. You're doing good work, okay? And then there are players, and players are people who are so captured by the king, so overwhelmed with the infinite value of his kingdom that they start looking at themselves and they start going, okay, how can I use me and mine to be a part of that? Because in the end, that's all that's going to matter. That's it. You mean I can use me and mine to be a part of that? Because I'm so captured by that that like, how can I not do that? That's, okay, that's what a player is. But here's what has to happen for you to become a player. And it's what we're talking about in our series, the study on the Sermon on the Mount. You have to, as Matt said two weeks ago when he kicked it off, to be willing to go up on the mountain with Jesus, man, and to let him challenge your kingdom. And when you see the mountain, we'll put that in quotes, that Jesus invited these people up onto literally 2,000 years ago, you know, you realize it really isn't that much of a climb. I mean, there's a picture from the top of the Mount of the Beatitudes. That is not Pike's Peak right there. It's not that tough to get up that. But you know some people didn't go. I mean, Jesus, you know, standing at the foot of the mount, okay? I'm sure invited them all to come. Hey, guys, here's the deal. I've been dialing this sermon in for weeks. Like, I've tried out different things. I've got my illustrations. Like, I'm feeling like this might be the greatest sermon ever told in the history of the world. Who's coming with me? A lot of folks went. But then there were people who were going, oh, man, you know, like I did hot yoga this morning and I've got like zero sweat left, right? It's brutal. You just wonder if you're going to make it. I think I'm going to miss that. You know, Lord, I mean, I realize it's not Pike's Peak, but it's going to take, I don't know, half an hour to get up there, half an hour to get back. Sometimes you go long. I've got a lot to do. All right, let's give the real excuse. Okay, Lord, so here's the deal. I don't know what you're going to say when we get up there. This whole idea of challenging my kingdom, that's a little threatening. I'm not going to lie. What's it going to cost me? You know what? I'm going to send my brother. He's going to take good notes. And they missed the greatest sermon ever told by the greatest man who ever lived. And then they had to endure from their brother and everybody who went that reality for the rest of their lives. So don't miss it is my point. Really, don't. 
We're inviting you up onto the mountain with Jesus. What kind of effort does that take? It takes the effort of getting our phone app and every day doing the personal worship, different passages of Scripture from this, different passages of Scripture related to this. Study questions so you can dig into it and really dig into it. Wait, it's the greatest sermon ever told by the greatest man who ever lived? I don't know. Maybe I can do that for 15 minutes a day. You might find it takes you an hour and you like it. I'm going to come each week. I'm not going to miss. And if I miss, I'm going to tune in on, you know, TV or on computer or whatever. I'm going to follow online. And whatever you do, do not let fear of what Jesus wants to take from you to keep you from going up onto the mountain, man. That is absolutely contrary to the nature of our God and of our Christ. He is a giver. (laughs) He's not a taker. And I want you to remember that particularly today because today Jesus on the mountain, he's invited us up, is going to talk to us about the law. And if there is anything about God and anything that makes God look like a taker, it is his law, isn't it? It's like, hey, you know, I really want to do this over here. You know what? Thou shalt not. Oh, (laughs) well, then I'm going to go over here and I want to do this over here. No, no, thou shalt not that either. Really? Okay, well, what about, no, what about, no, how about, no, (laughs) No, my good grief, it's suffocating. Or is it? You know, the law is not just the thou shalt not. I don't know if you do know that, but Jesus knew that. And the people actually that he invited up onto the mountain 2,000 years ago, they understood that. In fact, as we'll see, when we get to the part where Jesus gives us this piece of the sermon, he doesn't just talk about the law. When he talks about the law, he speaks of the law and the prophets. Well, what is that? The law and the prophets is his way and his day of referring to what we today call the Old Testament of the Bible, that part of the Bible that is written before the birth of Jesus, before the New Testament happens or is written. And it illustrates a really significant point, which is that the law of God, which we tend to think about solely as the thou shalt nots and the thou shalt not and the thou shalt nots, is really just a part of the story of God. So then what's the story of God? Well, it is a story, I think we have to own, that does begin with a law, a thou shalt not, and with our violation of that law. You know, you open the Bible up to the first few pages of the Bible and you find the biblical story of creation. And I realize that you might really believe that as I do, or you might not believe that. I understand, but listen to the story. You find a God who out of nothing creates all things in the space of six days. He creates the heavens and the earth, everything and everyone in them. He creates Adam. He creates Eve. He creates this paradisal garden called the Garden of Eden. He puts them in it and he says, guys, look around like it is lush. It is full. It's like amazing. One law. That's it. There's this one tree Thou shalt not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Because he says why. It's what all your kids want to know. Well, I can't do that. Why? Well, okay, yeah, but why? All right, well, then what about why? God's like, I anticipate the why, so I'm just going to give it to you on the front end. Don't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, it sounds more official than this language, thou shalt surely die. So what is he trying to take from them with this law? It's death. Like if the Lord magically transported you right now up into the Ingram Center, up into the conference room, and he sat down with you and he said, all right, so here's the deal. 
uh, I want to take something from you, right? You'd grab your wallet, just be honest, because you're fearful that that's what it really is. And in it, there's life. And he'd be saying, no, 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 not, not that. I want to take death from you. Like, would you need to call your lawyer to make that deal? I don't know. Let me think about this. Um, you know, like you'd be like, where do I sign? What do I do? Deprivation. So don't eat from the fruit because, you know, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. But here comes the serpent. He comes speaking, which is so crafty. It's so subtle. It's so suggestive of something. It's part of the ruse. Why? Because he possesses an ability that no other animal in the whole of the animal kingdom possesses, which is the ability to speak fluently human speech. So what is he suggesting by coming as a talking snake? He's suggesting that he's eaten of the fruit, he hasn't died, and he's greatly benefited. And that's exactly what he tells them will happen if they eat. You're not going to die. No, 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 no. You're, you're going to become like God. You're, you're going to have all of these great capacities. You're going to, and he convinces, well, them, that actually the law of God is designed to hold out on things to prevent them, to prevent us from things that are good. And I just want you to ask you, like, is that what you think the law of God is intended to do? It feels that way, doesn't it? All right, I'm going to give you the best possible example of this that I can give you, which is at the same time the worst possible example of this that I can give you. Really, like, it's both. The sexual ethic of the Bible, God creates us. He creates this amazing thing called sex. He makes us these multifaceted beings, physical, spiritual, emotional, all of these different aspects. And we're fully integrated, which means that we we engage one part, we engage all parts. We don't know that, we don't think that, we don't believe that, but we bear the wounds of that. And he says, look, I'm going to give you this beautiful gift. It's super powerful. You guys are going to have to trust me on this. I'm the designer. So I'm going to regulate it so that you can be free, not enslaved. And then he gives us this sexual ethic that feels like he has taken away a lot of things from us. He comes and he says, sex is for married people, period. No footnote, no end note. Like that's the whole thing. And if you're a spectator here today and you were wondering if we were a little weird, you're now convinced, right? Like, I mean, that's crazy. You're thinking, Tom, I was with you and then off the cliff we went. That was... That was nuts. Like, and if you're the friend who brought the spectator, you know, like, and you're thinking, I wish you had stayed away another week. That's no bueno. Feels pretty restrictive. Feels like it's designed to keep us from something good. But I want you to enter into a fantasy world with me for a minute, and that's what it is. I acknowledge that. I want you to imagine that today, right now, in this moment, we live in a world in which for the previous three generations, for reasons known only to them, everyone in the world universally obeyed God's sexual ethic, sex is for married people, and that's it. Three generations. Right now, what would we be without? We would be without adultery. We'd be without rape. We'd be without incest. We'd be without pedophilia. We'd be without sexual abuse. There wouldn't be kids who didn't know their fathers. There wouldn't be unwed mothers. 
99.999, just roll the nines out, percent of the 56 million abortions that occur in our world annually would not occur. HIV AIDS would not exist. STDs would not exist. Sexual addiction would not exist. Not only would we be without all of those things, we would be without the emotional, economic, social, and spiritual damage, including physical, I'd add, that they cause. Three biggest problem areas in marriage, incidentally. Sex, money, in-laws. You're welcome. (laughs) Just saying. One of the biggest reasons for sexual problems in marriage is the baggage we bring in. Look, if we were all of us able to just sort of pile up our 10 biggest piles of regret around themes, you know, we've got this, we've got this, I've got this pile of regret, it's this big, I've got this pile, it's this big, this pile we had to cut a hole in the roof for, okay, this pile, I can't see you, you can't see me, this pile, a little bit less. If we had 10 piles of our regret representing most of the regret in our lives, okay, a lot of that regret, I'd say top three and for most of us, top one, highest pile this issue. So what is the Lord trying to deprive us of? Hurt? Guilt? Shame? Again, if he brought you up into the conference room and said, hey, I want to deprive you of another thing. (laughs) Hurt, guilt, shame, whatever. He'd be like, take it please. And you say, yeah, but so far all this conversation has done has reminded me of all my piles. (laughs) And now I'm thinking hurt, guilt, shame. But that's why it's important that we remember that these laws are contained in stories. They're contained in stories. Like that first story, God creates the heavens and the earth. He does it in six days, if you know the story. And at the end of every day, he says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. It's good, it's good, it's good, until there's something that's not good, which is stunning, like there's a not good thing in the world in which God has created. And what is the not good thing? Genesis 2.18, it is not good that the man should be alone. So he identifies the problem, and now he gives the solution. So then I will make him a helper, fit for him, equal to him, adequate for him. The solution is the woman. But how does he make her? Because it's instructive. These stories are so carefully put together, guys. It's remarkable. He takes his sinless son, Adam. That's who he is. He was given birth out of the earth. The Lord gave birth to him in that sense. He takes his sinless son, Adam, and he causes Adam to sleep a deep sleep, which is a metaphor of death elsewhere in the Bible. Christians expect to wake up from death someday. It's referred to as a form of sleep. And while the sinless man is sleeping, God wounds the sinless man by piercing his side, and it is from the piercing and the wounding of the sinless man who is caused to sleep that God fashions a bride for him, and he awakens this man, and then he presents him with his bride. And this guy is sinless, like he gets it, and he waxes poetic. He rejoices over her, if you will, with singing, like, perfect response, and everything is great until the serpent comes along and convinces first the woman that far from trying to keep death from her, the Lord's trying to keep life from her. 
And she takes from the fruit and she eats it and she gives it to her husband with her. And what does he do? Let's just stop and think about that for a minute. We know he eats it, okay? But what if he didn't? Like in that moment, what should he have done instead? Because I think what he should have done is he should have said, honey, you get, give me that. Let's just put that down over here, and I want you to stay right here. And then he should have gone to the Lord God himself in his state of sinlessness and said, Lord, with tears, my bride has broken your law. Your law that, well, when it's broken, brings death. But I haven't broken it. I've kept it. And I so love this woman that here's what I want you to do, if you would. I want you to take her guilt, and I want you to clothe me entirely in it, and I want you to take my innocence and my righteousness, and I want you to clothe her entirely in it, and then I want you to kill me in her place and let me pay the debt for her. Take my life that she might be forgiven and set free. That's not what he does. But doesn't that story leave you longing for somebody who would? Because that's Christ. He's the sinless Son of God whom the Father would have to take a bride. Who's the bride? Like, is that a person? Who's the lucky girl, you know? No, 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 no. It's a people. A people chosen out of every people group on the face of the planet throughout all of the ages. It is a people for his son, described in the Bible as a bride. We get his name, we get his rights, we get his privileges. Everything that is his becomes ours. Pretty remarkable. And yet, what's the problem with the bride? Because I'm, I'm one part of her. I pray you are too. Yeah, we've broken all the laws, man. we got the piles to prove it. It's all here. So what has effectively Christ done? He's gone to the Father and in a sense said, I love my bride so much that here's what I want you to do. I want you to take all of her guilt, and I want you to personalize that. I want you to take all of his guilt, all of her guilt, and I want you to clothe me in it. And then I want you to take all of my innocence and all of my righteousness, and I want you to clothe that person in it, them in it, her in it, him in it. And then on the cross... I will pay the penalty for them. Take my life in the place of my bride. Jesus sleeps the sleep of literal death for you. While he is asleep, where is he pierced? Just one spot right here in the side. And what is the gospel? It is that through the sufferings of Jesus, through the death of Jesus, through the burial of Jesus, through the resurrection of Jesus, okay, we're forgiven. Our debt is paid and we're made new. Death, guilt, shame, all of it. We're deprived of those things. Aren't you happy? Through the work of Christ. That's a remarkable thought. He suffers and dies and God shows you, I accept the payment by raising him from the dead and leaving behind an empty tomb that if you study it, there's no good explanation for apart from literal resurrection. And so powerful is the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf that our God, we are told, rejoices over us with singing, which is a remarkable and amazing and incredible thought. And look, here's the deal. Even though I have used that example before here, 
And even though there are like a hundred other examples in the Old Testament with that same pattern, life, suffering, death, burial, and even third-day resurrection again and again and again and again and again and again if you know what to look for, I chose to use this one very particularly because this picture of the gospel is handed to us before Adam and Eve eat from the fruit and sin even enters into the biblical narrative of humanity. In other words, it's like God is coming to us on the first two pages of the Bible and saying, look, here's the deal. I'm going to give you my law, and it's going to show you my holiness. It's going to be an expression of my nature and of my character. Like you are going to look at the law, and in a sense, effectively, you're going to see me, my purity, what I stand for, what I'm for, what I'm against, all of these different things. But here's the deal. I know you're not going to you're not going to get it right. You're going to have piles. So before the need for forgiveness and the dealing with those piles even enters into the narrative of humanity, I'm going to give you a picture of my sinless son, Jesus, whom I'm going to send for you so that when he comes, you'll go, aha, I recognize him. And when he invites you to come up onto the mountain, and he talks to you about the law of God, you'll understand what he means. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So there that is. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them how? By coming as a man for mankind, earning the favor of God by perfectly inside and out, keeping God's law knowing that I wouldn't, knowing that you wouldn't. He did it for us. For truly, I say to you, Jesus continues until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Well, isn't that what you just said, Tom? Jesus accomplished it all. Like he, he kept it all perfectly already for me, and then he suffered and died and rose again. That's exactly what I've said. And you're like, well, then what's the point of the law for me today? Well, I said that too. What does the law do? It shows us God's character. It shows us his nature. What am I now to do with the law? Because I don't have to keep it to earn God's favor. I don't do it out of duty or obligation or out of fear. Listen, Jesus has won God's favor infallibly for me, and he's given it to me as a free gift. So I'm not trying to win his favor. I'm trying to show him off. I mean, I suppose I could do it selfishly. I could just do it because, you know what, it keeps me from death and it keeps me from hurt and it keeps me from regret and it keeps me from guilt and it keeps me from shame. It does all of those things when we obey it, but that's not why. I obey it because I'm in love with the one who, before I even had need of it, told me forgiveness was coming. And my job and yours, if you're on the team, is to make him known by revealing his nature and character through the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life as you learn little by little and you'll fail and there's grace for that. And then you'll get up and do better the next time. And then you'll fail and there's grace for that. But you reveal him to the people in your world as you reveal his nature and character. How? By living the way he would have you live. That is to say, by living like him. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. For who would hide the ability to reveal the nature and character of God in love from his own people? But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
And then he says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, who to this day are famous for keeping the law of God, out here you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, which is not at all terrifying to the Christian. Look, God, no, no big deal. Why? Because you're able to do this better than the scribes and Pharisees? Trust me, no. <laughs> not the answer. Because the righteousness of Jesus infinitely exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And you remember the exchange, right? Clothe me in his or her guilt. Clothe him or her in my righteousness. So we're going to do our reflection a little bit different today. I'm going to ask you to stand now. We're going to begin to worship here in a moment. But I want to give you a couple things to think about, okay? So first of all, have you recognized Jesus as the, as the expression of God's love toward you? God so loved that he gave Christ for you. <laughs> have you realized your need of it? Have you looked at the piles and said, yep, yeah, you know, this is a problem? Because you have the ability to leave them here. You can leave them with Jesus. He calls you to come to him in faith. And then secondly, are you a spectator, fan, or player? And like if you're just here for the first time, you're a spectator, I got it, but we want to move you toward player. And if you're holding out on player, like what is it? What keeps you back? What is keeping you from climbing the mountain and letting Jesus challenge your kingdom? Because guys, he's... He's not a taker. He's a giver. The only thing to fear is what you'll miss if you don't. So think about those things as we sing this song and as we reflect on this together.